Welcome to Know My Faith. My guest is Perry Trotter from Evangelical Zionism. Perry, thanks for joining us again. Pleased to be here. Um, we we want to talk about a subject that needs to be reiterated often, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we, we don't want to do it in a way that um, people get bored with it. But it, it, it's so many people miss it. Why should I, a Christian in New Zealand, mm -hmm. support Israel? What, what, you know, we, we used to have in radio this term WHAM, W-H-A-M. Why and how does this affect me? Well, I'd like to reframe the question from the outset All right. and make it a little broader in a sense or more foundational. I would say, why should Israel be important to every believer? Because it's right. a that's a different it question. It is, yes. Different question because one flows from the other. So right? why should Israel be important to every believer? To, to every believer. Okay, well, the first observation I would make is that uh, it's a question that ought not need to be answered because if we're reading the text of Scripture, it ought to be clear to us that Israel is a very, very central topic. Yeah. In fact, it's not just central, it, um, the Scriptures fall to bits without it. Now, I've had some conversations with people around these issues many times, and I had a recent conversation, and one gentleman said something to the effect that well, we should be about Christ or Messiah more than about Israel. And I thought, well, if you get Messiah right, you'll get Israel right. And if you get Israel right, you get Messiah right. Yep. So how could you present Messiah accurately without getting Israel accurate as well? We, sometimes, we, we want to push the whole Israel Jewish thing aside. I, in one of my presentations, I used to, I, I'd put the name Zeus up there and I'd say, do we worship Zeus, the great god of the Greeks? People go, no, so, so we don't worship the god of the Greeks. What about Odin, the great god of the Vikings? No, we don't worship the Vikings god. What about Ra, the creator god of the Egyptians? No, we don't worship the Egyptians god. So I go, whose god do we worship? And inevitably, somebody will go, the one true god. And I mm -hmm. go, you are evading the question. Mm -hmm. We worship the god of Israel. Yeah. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and yeah. Jacob. And yeah. it's, it's interesting that I think it's in Exodus that he identifies himself that way uh, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he, he it's really, really clear that he connects himself to that particular people group and by implication to the oaths and the yeah. covenants that were made with that particular people group. And I think it's something like 12 times he's identified as God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and repeatedly, maybe 200 times, I'll have to check, uh, that it's the God of Israel. Yeah. And uh, that's his identification. Yes. Now, it would seem that many believers think that when we get to the New Testament, he changes. I don't think so. <laughs> and we were chatting earlier, weren't we, about um, the idea that when we read the text of Scripture, we really need to be reading it as you would read a normal book. You read from the beginning yep. to the end. It's not so much that you interpret the Old Testament through the New or the New Testament through the Old. It's a coherent document. Yeah. And you read it as you would read any other document in one sense. There's continuity and discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But if you handle it accurately, you're going to see this very consistent theme from beginning to end, or more accurately, from Genesis 12 to the end. Yes. Yeah. And while we're thinking about that, let's consider the fact that when you look at the Scriptures from a biblical point of view and a biblical time frame, I should say, then the first uh, 2,000 years of human history are covered in you know, around about, 
well, exactly, 11 chapters, yes, yeah. right? And then things, and they move at an incredible pace, right? Think about the things like creation, monumental event, but it's just a covered in summary. Then think about what happened in Genesis 6, the Nephilim, and then through to the flood. It just covers it in summary it's, it's, form. Yeah, it is. And then you get to Genesis 12. And, and then we start slows, getting details. Yeah. It slows right down, yeah. and it deals with one particular family, right? Abraham, Isaac, yeah. and Jacob, and it includes all sorts of dirty washing, which is another mark of authenticity to me, yeah. because normally if you're writing a book that is a propaganda piece, you would really build up your heroes, would yeah, you not? Yeah, you, you, write, but, but, you write historically inaccurate histories. That's right. Yeah. But in, in fact, when you read the scriptures, you find out the heroes are presented with all the dirty washing, all the very embarrassing yeah. uh, events that happened in the lives of these people. And so getting back to my primary point is that from Genesis 12, it goes very, very slowly and it builds up a story and the covenants of a particular people and the interactions of the transcendent God with one particular people group. And we've probably talked about Genesis 12 in the past. In Genesis 12, 1 and 2, it's very specifically dealing with Abraham and what God will do with the people that will come from him. And in, in those verses... Those first three verses, you see the word bless or blessing five times. And it's really, really clear that that's God's intention, which is deeply comforting. And when the word curse occurs in verse three, it's reactive. Now, I find that really interesting in the sense that God is very intentional about his desire to bless. But when he decides he will curse, it's reactive. It's those who will curse or have a bad relationship with that particular people group that comes from Abraham and later Isaac and Jacob. You see my point? Yeah. That that's quite profound. You're not not saying reactive in as in spontaneously reacting. It's it's like my intention is to bless you Mm -hmm. and bless you and bless you and bless those who bless you. Mm -hmm. But if somebody curses you, the reaction will be correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's he doesn't he doesn't like oh you know I need to do this. Yeah. And, and furthermore, I, I think that um, very often Christians like us who support Israel will look at that t- uh, text, Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse as a kind of uh, a key to personal blessing. And, and I think it is that. Mm. But I also think it's a profound prophecy that is unfolded throughout the Scriptures. So we, we have two groups of Gentiles spoken of. In Genesis 12, verse 3, those who have a bad relationship with the people that come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those who have a good and right relationship with the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you look from there to the end of history as revealed in the Scriptures, you see that theme um, being established. You could almost call them the sheep and the goats. Funny that. Isn't it strange? Yeah, Matthew 25. And I think there's a straight line from Genesis 12, verse yeah. 3 to Matthew 25. Because most people miss that. They go, you know, when Jesus is talking about this, there are there's two groups of people. There's there's the sheep and the goats. You go, no, there's actually three groups of people. Mm-hmm. Because in the middle of that mm-hmm. are the people of Israel. My brethren. My, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think we might be on the same page on that. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, our problem is, of course, and we're, we're again reiterating this, that we've had 2,000 years of separation of the Gentile church to the point where we now think, with the Gentiles, we think, okay, we are allowed to, you know, in the, call it the Old Testament days, only the Jews were allowed to worship 
the God of Israel. Mm -hmm. The Gentiles were not allowed to. You had to convert to Judaism. To You had to become a Jew. So now we as Gentiles are allowed to worship the God of Israel. And you go, well, that's not technically correct. We are allowed to join Israel in worshipping the God of Israel without becoming Jews. Yeah, well, I, I would articulate some of what you've said somewhat differently in, in the sense that during through the Hebrew Scriptures, it was always possible for Gentiles to come and worship the God of Israel, but they were always outside the camp as it were. Yeah. And more than as it were, you know, there was a separate court for the Gentiles. Yes, the beyond that right? wall of separation. That's yeah. right. Whereas in uh, the New Testament, we have this new entity, I believe, that's uh, created called the Ecclesia or the Church, and that has to be articulated carefully too because it's so misunderstood. <laughs> but within the Church, um, Jew and Gentile believers are on equal terms. But that does not negate the uniqueness and the unique calling of Israel as a people. And when I hear people uh, engaging in replacement theology and articulating the idea that the church has in some way replaced or is a continuation of Israel or it comes in all sorts of yeah. iterations, they're committing a category mistake in the first instance mm -hmm. because these are two very, very different entities. Israel is a people, I would argue, of, of common descent from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. There are people with a land. There are people with a distinct set of covenants. Now, the church doesn't have a land as such. Mm. I would, and this may be controversial to some, it does not have its own covenants. We, we share in the spiritual blessings of the Jewish people. Yes. Yeah. So it's a category mistake. These are entirely different kinds of entities. I think, I think what it's we've, important. Yeah, what we've done though with the, the whole replacement theology is we look at the new covenant, mm -hmm which God says, I will make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. We've joined in with that. But we see that as replacing all the covenants that God made with Israel. Mm -hmm. And you go, well, no, actually, it just replaces the Mosaic covenant. I, yeah, I agree with that. It doesn't replace the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah. But we, we kind of look at that. Yeah. We go, okay, so so there's the new covenant. So we've still got the, uh, the Edenic covenant. We've got the Adamic covenant. We've got the Noahic covenant. The Davidic one with David, that fits in there somewhere, but all the rest of them sure. have been replaced by the ego. No. Well, let me um, come back against that to some degree. I, I can't see an Adamic or Edenic covenant, but I can see a Noahic covenant <laughs> yeah. and I can definitely see an Abrahamic covenant and one with David and, and so on. But let me make a comment about the new covenant. So very often Christians will own the new covenant. I'm happy for them to own the new covenant, but let's include its content. And its content, if you read Jeremiah 31, where it was first announced, and Hebrews 8, where it's it's a passage that quotes from Jeremiah yep. 31, and it's the longest quote in the New Testament of the Old Testament scriptures. Is it? I didn't it know is. that. And it's explicit. It's made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, but it includes all sorts of references to the land. So there's a lot packed up in the new mm. covenant that is ignored when Christians spend time thinking about it. Yeah. They need to take the whole package. It, it includes the idea of Israel being restored to her land. It includes the idea of Israel being redeemed as we would understand that. Mm. But that, again, that Abrahamic covenant is still with the people of Israel, mm -hmm. even though the new covenant is tied up in there somewhere. So when, when you, if you looked at that plainly without 2,000 years of replacement theology, mm -hmm. you would go, oh, we join with that which is connected with that. 
Not, sure, not, sure. Not, th not that the Abrahamic one becomes ours as well. No, well, let me go back to Genesis 12, verse 3, and, and let me point out that in those first two verses of Genesis 12, so Genesis 12, 1 and 2, you need to recognise it's a mechanism of exclusion. It really is. It's pulling out this particular family line and separating them from the Gentiles. Now, that, in, if it stopped there, that ought to be worrying to a lot of people. But then we find in verse 3 that through you, all the families yes. of the earth will be blessed. And that's the way God's chosen to do it. So I'm not Jewish, but I can enjoy the uh, blessings that God intended and the instrument, shall we say, yeah. of those blessings to mankind and to non-Jews like me is Israel. And at the center of Israel is the Messiah. And getting back to an idea we started to pursue earlier, if you get Messiah right, you get Israel right. And if you get Israel right, you get Messiah right, yeah. because he is, he cannot accurately be separated from his people. Because if you think about the way that the Messiah's career is unpacked through the Hebrew scriptures, you get this profoundly clear declaration that one day he will establish himself in Jerusalem. He will restore Israel to the land. He will be the king of Israel. It, speaking of which, uh, Christians very often use the term uh, my king or they talk about the kingdom being now yep. and so on. But let's, let's, let's stick to what the text says. Yeah. 25 times in the Gospels alone, Messiah is referred to as king of Israel, king of the Jews or some similar appellation. Yeah. He's never referred to as king of the church. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Now let's, let's keep a bit of clarity because if it may be coincidental, but I think not. Messiah is referred in terms of his relationship to the church as head of the body or bridegroom in regard to yeah. the bride. The scriptures are actually quite clear and careful in terms of the way these terminology. God uses words specifically I think so. in the Bible. You know, when you talk about Jesus reigning, you know, Jesus will reign over all the earth. You go, yeah, he will. From where? Mm. Yeah. From Jerusalem yeah. as king of Israel, which means that Israel will be, there'll still, still be a New Zealand. I think so. There'll still be an Ethiopia. You know, somebody said, so, you know, when the millennium comes, we're not all going to live in, in Jerusalem. You know, I'd still like Caddy Caddy. It's a nice little town. So he is reigning the earth. Israel will be the world power that reigns over all the earth because Jesus as king of the earth will be king of Israel. Yeah, that's the scenario yeah. that I think is uh, is described really clearly in, we, in we, the Hebrew we Scriptures. We, we sort of breeze over. To, I don't like that idea, so we just sure. throw it away. Yeah. I mean, I have a strong interest in anti-Semitism, and one of the things that's always struck me is that kingdom conditions of the kind that you're referring to are almost like a mirror image of conditions today. So you will know that uh, Jewish people have, had, have been in a precarious position for the last 2,000 years or more, in the sense that even in the streets of Europe today, uh, Jewish people might be very hesitant about wearing a yarmulke or a kippah mm. uh, and being seen in the streets because they may be attacked. Now, you think of that for a moment, then compare it to Zechariah 8, 22 or 23 that says, and in those days, 10 men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the edge of his robe and say, let us go with you, yeah. because we've heard that God is with you. I mean, what greater contrast could you have between that? Current conditions and, 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 that, yeah. and those conditions. Yeah. And uh, the Zechariah 8 passage is describing the kingdom. Yeah. This is not 
the kingdom. No. I mean, I, I get a little bit fed up when people use this very popular mantra, the already not yet kingdom. No. The primary use of the term kingdom, the primary use is that kingdom, the messianic kingdom, when the one that we believe is the mm. Mashiach, the yep. Messiah, will return to Jerusalem, having regathered his people and reign on the earth and righteousness will be the rule, not the exception, as mm. it is today. A verse, and I think it's Mark 12, 24, is one of those verses that God sort of, he's, he's, he's given me the verse and I can't remember the scripture reference. But when Jesus is talking with the Sadducees, when they come to him uh, with that whole problem of the woman, you know, the guy that married the woman and he died without children and then his brother married him and so on and so on. Um, but Jesus' answer to them is, he says, you err because you're an error because you don't know the scriptures. All the power of God. All, all yeah. the power of God. But yeah. I think in this whole end times thing, when we're seeing uh, such things happening in the world, uh, and has been the case for 2,000 years of replacement theology, but the error is made because you don't know the Scriptures. Um, and the, we, as Christians, we tend to use the New Testament for theology. And I know I'm being very broad in this, but we use the New Testament for theology. We use the Old Testament for reference. And we have to stop doing that. We have to get our theology from the Old Testament, mm -hmm. which in some ways, and because the New Testament is so much of Paul's writings, you can say what, what Paul does in his writings is he, he really explains the Tanakh mm -hmm. in the light of Yeshua being the Messiah. Mm -hmm. so, so here's this scripture here, well, Jesus is the Messiah, so we can see this. Um, it, it doesn't, it's, it's not a whole new theology. No, it's built on a foundation that is established in the Hebrew Scriptures. Yeah. And I think that one of the keys, or two of the keys to understanding the Bible correctly is making a special note of where the covenants turn up. Because anything God says is to be taken seriously, but when he stops and makes a covenant with a particular people group and then adds to that covenant his oath, pay special attention to that content. And if you do that, you will be equipped to understand what's happening in the Gospels. You'll mm. be equipped to understand how history will unfold. The other principle, I think, is this issue of messianic prophecy. We were talking earlier about the idea that the Hebrew Scriptures unpack the identity of this coming yeah. enigmatic person who will do all sorts of things. And it starts in Genesis 3.15, I believe, where it says, and I put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he will crush your head and you will crush... Bruise he, he'll, he'll bruise he, he your will, heel. He will bruise... I've got this wrong, yeah. haven't I? He will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. And even then, I've got that reversed. But, but the point there, in Genesis 3, verse 15, we have set out, actually, when you unpack that text, you have the first and second coming of the Messiah. It's not immediately clear, mm -hmm. but you have the first and second coming of Messiah laid out there, and it becomes explicitly clear in later prophecy. Yeah. So having started with this very um, uh, almost mystical statement, the specifics are, are built up and provided as we get through the Hebrew Scriptures. So Genesis 49 verse 10, we find out there'll be this descendant from Judah, one of um, Yaakov's sons, and he's given this name Shiloh, or him to whom it belongs. Yes, and yeah. so 
and it talks of a scepter. So you get this idea that he will be a king of some kind. So bit by bit, we yeah, get pro- this... Progressive revelation. Correct. Yeah, and yeah. that is the proper understanding of yeah. that theological term, progressive revelation. More and more is added yeah. to the picture. If you talk to a replacement theologian, he will say that progressive revelation means that earlier revelation is discarded yep. and replaced by the theology that they have imposed on the new. That's yeah. important. Yeah, which is not the case. Correct. Uh, and if a, a little analogy would be um, we used to have black and white movies, mm-hmm. very flat two-dimensional movies, mm-hmm. and then we had uh, with no sound, mm-hmm. and then we progressed. Yeah. We still had flat two-dimensional black and white movies yeah. with sound. And then we progressed again. Yeah. We then had flat, two-dimensional colour movies with sound. Yeah. And then we got another progression and we had three-dimensional colour movies with sound. And so, you know, yeah. so it's, it's, it's not doing away. We've still, got the, we've still got the original movie. Yeah. We've just, we've just added on to it. And this is the progression, the progressive revelation that God's given us. He said, you don't, you don't need the full thing at the beginning. I'm, I'm slowly revealing this to you so you understand it. Yeah, you get higher definition as you get closer yeah. to the mark. Yeah, right. Yeah. But we've thrown out we've thrown out the movie and we're just yeah. inter- interested in the surround sound that we've missed the missed the point somewhat. Of the Gospel of Luke, I think it's most explicit, uh, you find that there are these people who are really expecting the Mashiach, the Messiah. Mm. And there's got to be a reason for that because they have recognised in some cases that this is the right time for him to come. Yes. And they are expecting certain things of him. And when you unpack the way the angel spoke to both uh, Joseph and Mary and the content, I would say that those that angel had a great deal of excellent content and yeah. reliable theology because it's very consistent with the Davidic covenant, the idea that somebody's going to come who's going to be a king over Israel. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, no, who was it the angel told the shepherds had been born? Hmm. You know? Yeah. There's a lot of content in there, and you can see that they the messages were very much in line with the revelation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Yeah, I mean, Anna and Simeon, as we, you're alluding to in the mm. temple, they they were expecting, mm. and there were others, if we if we mm. read the Scriptures, we, you know, we find there were others, um, whereas the uh, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the priests, for some reason, you know, Jesus turns around and says, if you'd known this, your time. Mm-hmm. Why, you know, you've got the scriptures. You've mm-hmm. got the book of Daniel chapter nine. Mm-hmm. How come you didn't figure out that this was me? Sure. What did you, know, what did you, what did you throw out? And, and again, what we've done with, uh, uh, call it New Testament exclusive Christianity, is we've thrown all that out. Yeah. And that's why we missed the point. Yeah, it's neglected or sometimes it's actually distorted. Yeah. It's very hard though to to say that to someone, to say, hey Perry, you know, you actually you're you know you're a full on Christian, you you love the Lord and all of this, but actually you're wrong. I don't find it that hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How, what's if you're talking to someone, how would you proceed to to, to get the lights on to for them to just to break through some way to think that maybe they're understanding. Perhaps by asking questions. Uh, and I, I think this applies to whether, you, whether you're speaking with a believer or an unbeliever. Dig. Ask them to f- tell you the foundations for what they believe. So if you, I've got an um, academic friend who's much smarter than me, but in my view, 
the morality that he holds to has absolutely no foundation. And I've explained to that. He, he's a very upright man. I yeah. like him a lot and and our values would be very much the same. But I've explained to him in the past that he has absolutely no grounding for the morality that he holds. Whereas my view, even if he rejects it, he must acknowledge that I'm consistent. Yep. It's coherent, the idea that there is a transcendent being who defines good and evil. What's he got? You know, materialism, uh, atheistic materialism, evolution and all that cannot deliver morality. No. And Richard Dawkins got that right. He, he describes yeah. um, ethics and morality as just illusory. I think he's right yeah, yeah. in his world. With, with, without that foundation. foundation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think he describes the universe as just sort of indifferent, pitifully indifferent yes. to suffering. And, and, and indifferent and pointless and, and, and all That's that. That's right. But so imagine, imagine you're talking to somebody in the church, though. Mm-hmm. How, how would you approach them? Well, let them talk and ask questions about what they're, <laughs> what they're saying. And so, for example, we touched on the idea of how the term kingdom is so grossly misused. Yeah. Just ask them to justify the way they're using that term. Um, show me where this period is described as the kingdom. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> so, yeah, that's yeah. how I would and, and show, yeah, show, me, show me from scripture. Yeah. That's the big thing nowadays is trying to actually get a Christian to give you the scripture yeah. that is the foundation for their yeah. theological understanding and belief. Sure. Because so many don't do that. They, they, That's you know, right. Um, if, if we just, and we're not going to get into this, but if we use the, the rapture pre trib, mid trib, post trib, somebody goes, I'm a pre tribber, you go, why? Hmm. Yeah. Look, look. We, to be fair, we all absorb all sorts of things as though in our mother's milk. Yes. As yeah, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I became a believer in the early 70s, so there's a whole lot of things I just took for granted in that period. And over the years, I've had to question them, and some of those ideas I've rejected. Because? Because I found no foundation read the, for them. read the Scripture, yeah, and you, there's no right. foundation for and, it. And there's an idea that's even below that as a foundation, and that is that the Scriptures have authority. And a lot of Christians will profess that today, but... Not that many will actually be consistently uh, yeah. outworking that yeah. concept. Yeah. So it's, it's a, like, what the hell the Bible says is, well, I don't care, I believe this. Right. It's for some people, an experience they might have had is more important than what the Scriptures yeah. might teach. Yeah. And, and for some people, what a particular teacher has told them is more important than what the Scriptures explicitly teach. Yeah. If uh, somebody's watching this or listening the, to this, and I want to send them to your website, evangelicalzionism.com. Correct. You've got a search bar on there. What do they want to search for? It's a short series of films. It only takes 45 minutes to watch all of those films. I shot them in 2015 in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the subtitle of the site is uh, An Evangelical Response to Even... Uh, I'll start again. An Evangelical Response to Israel's Evangelical Enemies. So we start, start at video one. Yeah, and follow those through. But I, I try to take on many of the key ideas that... Israel's evangelical enemies yeah. hold. Are you happy for people to engage you through the website? If they watch through, they can oh, of course. ask you questions. Yeah, and I'm easy to find online. Yeah. yeah, all right. Perry, thank you so much again. I look forward to the next one. Very good.